Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 148 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with law professor Ben Barton about the subject of his book, Rebooting Justice, More Technology, Fewer Lawyers, and the Future of Law. Dun, Ooh, dun, robots. Dun. <laughs> Today's podcast is sponsored by Clio Legal Practice Management Software. Clio makes running your law firm easier. Try it for free today at Clio.com. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Ruby Receptionists, and it's smart, charming receptionists who are perfect for small firms. Visit callruby.com slash lawyerist to get a risk-free trial with Ruby. So Sam, today... You and Professor Barton, Ben or Professor Barton? I think Ben works. Ben? Okay. We'll go cash now that we're done with law school. (laughs) Are going to talk about kind of some long-term future trends in justice and courts. And I thought it might be a useful opportunity for us to talk about long-term thinking for small law firms too. Yeah, I think as it always is, this gets scary for lawyers when you include things like fewer lawyers in the title of your book. Yeah, that is very provocative. I assume he did that on purpose. Yeah, but I mean, he's probably right. I mean, inevitably, given the demographics of the legal profession, there will be fewer lawyers without anyone being devastated. Potentially, yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So like before we get to what you were started (laughs) talking about, I think there are potentially two possibilities, right? One is fewer lawyers because we can leverage technology to have fewer lawyers. The other possibility is that technology allows us to have much more complicated legal relationships, in which case we actually need more lawyers to help us program and manage all those systems. So I'm I'm not sure. Okay. So you're going to challenge... Ben slash Professor Barton. Yeah, what does he know? He's just a law professor. Oh, oh, wow. Ouch. (laughs) Anyway, uh, we'll be talking about some long-term trends, and I thought this would be a good opportunity for us to also talk about long-term thinking for small law firms. We've got a giveaway on Lawyerist for the Start Here HQ Practice Model Canvas, which is a business model canvas worksheet that lawyers can work through to figure out kind of their long-term strategy for target clients, different ways of providing services and pricing, how they go about marketing their firm. And it's a really useful tool for thinking big picture about the direction of your firm as it relates to the future. Yeah. And so I guess this is a good opportunity for me to introduce a little bit of new stuff on Lawyerist so that you can get that. If you go to our website, lawyerist.com, and you look on the nav menu, the red nav menu, there's a new item called library. And if you pull that down, you'll go to the insider library. And that's where you'll find the start here practice model canvas, which comes from another podcast with Alex Devendra. And you'll find lots of other free stuff. And you'll note that you need to register an account as an insider in order to do that. And that's what we're doing now. We can give you lots of free stuff. And all we ask is that you register an account. Then you can comment on the site. You can leave ratings on products. And we're going to try and make your subscription more valuable over time. So visit lawyerist.com slash library and you can find it there. Yeah, and it's not just a a way to get free stuff. It's also the entry point to joining the tribe of similarly different, similarly different minded. Is that what we're saying? Yes. Similarly different minded small firm lawyers from around the country. And so going to, it's just lawyerist.com slash library, right? It is, yeah. Yep. Cool. Lawyerist.com slash library, and you can get <laughs> and you can get the uh, practice model canvas and any other freebies you want. 
And uh, once you register, we'll invite you to join our private Facebook group for practicing lawyers who are insiders, which is pretty cool. And we've got some fun plans for that too. So get the practice model canvas and it will help you think through what your firm might need to look like going forward. And you might want to listen to the podcast with Alex Devendra if you haven't done that. And actually understanding the shape of the legal market right now will be easier after this brief sponsored segment with Jack Newton from Clio. And then we'll hear from Professor Barton. Hey there, I'm Jack Newton. I'm the CEO and founder of Clio. Hi, Jack. It's great to have you back on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So we wanted to touch base about the legal trends report that you launched at the last Clio Cloud Conference just recently. So what's the headline from that report? There's a few headlines from this year's report. One is we continue to be concerned about the, the devastatingly low utilization rate we see in the legal profession, which is on average around 25%, which means that the average lawyer, uh, if they're working an average eight-hour workday, is actually only getting around two and a quarter billable hours out the door every day, which just makes the economics of running a law firm very, very challenging. Yeah. And there's uh, a few other headlines I, I can talk about later in the, the podcast, but that's certainly one of the one of the main takeaways. Uh, I mean, that's that, the big one, right? Lawyers aren't getting paid for 75% of their day. That's right. They're not getting paid for 75% of their day. And then when you look further down the the funnel as we describe it, so if you if you think about the eight hours of, of a workable day at the top of the funnel or 10 hours or 12 hours, whatever your hap your workday happens to be, the next step down in that funnel is your your utilization rate, which is how much billable time you're uh, you're actually generating. For the average lawyer, that's only 2.3 hours. Then when you look at the realization rate, which is the next step down the funnel, there's an average of 1.9 hours actually ending up on the bill. So that's net of discounting and any write downs you might apply. And then finally, there's about a 20% attrition rate uh, when we go to the collection rate and look at what lawyers actually get paid when you net out bad debt uh, and any other reasons that the clients might not pay the full bill, for example. So at the end of that funnel, uh, you go from 2.3 hours utilized, 1.9 hours realized, and only 1.6 hours collected. That's that's a pretty devastating funnel and pretty devastating unit yeah. economics for a lawyer to try and trying to to work with. But the the highest point of leverage in our mind and the place that we as a company are focusing on is on the utilization rate, where we look at that, we call it the missing six hours as a bit of a, a shorthand within Clio. What do we do to help lawyers make better use of that missing six hours? And there's really only two hypotheses around what's going on with that missing six hours that makes sense. You know, do lawyers not have enough clients to stay busier through the day, or are they not productive enough? Are they not uh, able to focus on essentially billable tasks, and they're, they're spending too much time on, on overhead-related tasks and administrative tasks? And we think there's a, a real opportunity for Clio to, to help them with both of those things. So you didn't just stop at finding a utilization rate and then gaping at it, which is <laughs> what I do. Um, you actually tried to figure out where the missing six hours are going. So what did you do and what did your data show on that? That's right. And to be clear, uh, our initial legal trends report in 2016 uh, just left us gaping at that number and left us wanting to better understand uh, what's going on in the average law office to cause that utilization rate to be so low. So uh, cut to the 2017 survey, we did a very intensive survey of legal professionals to try to understand where those missing six hours are. And here's here's the net of it. Around half of that missing six hours 
uh, is spent on uh, administrative tasks, things like office administration, uh, generating and uh, and sending bills, uh, and and doing collections. Uh, managing technology was in that list. Uh, so around three hours of that missing three hours is going into into just pure administrative overhead. And we think there's obviously a massive opportunity to winnow that down to we would like to see it, you know, asymptotically approach zero over time. We don't think lawyers should be spending any of their day on that stuff. It should all be automated. Uh, and then they're spending around one and a half hours a day or, or 33 percent of that that missing uh, six hours on business development. So essentially trying to find new clients. And uh, again, we, we saw that as a real growth area in a place that we might be able to help help lawyers maybe more efficiently acquire and convert clients. And you're using the legal terms report as sort of the the guidepost for where Clio's development needs to go, right? You're trying to develop Clio to solve these problems for lawyers. Yeah, you know, I, I think our roadmap is informed by by two things. One would be the legal trends report, which really lets us understand, you know, in a data-driven way what we can do to help make lawyers, you know, more effective and more efficient and also to help us chart out where we think the profession needs to go to evolve into its next form. We all know, I think, that legal and the way legal is practiced and the way services are delivered to consumers needs to radically change in the next decade and will radically change in the next decade. And we want to be at the forefront of that that wave of change and helping bring our customers along to what the future of the practice of law looks like. Uh, a great example of how this year's Legal Trends Report is helping inform our, our roadmap is if we look at the, the consumer research we did. So in addition to the, the kind of inward facing, how are lawyers doing and how productive are our lawyers and where do they need help in, in getting the most out of their day, uh, this year we also looked outward and did a consumer survey of over 2,000 consumers and tried to understand two things from consumers of legal services. Number one, how do they find a lawyer? Uh, and number two, what criteria do they use to decide on a lawyer and what leaves them satisfied after interacting with a lawyer? And I can give us the cut. Yeah, give us the top couple. Sure. So if we if we look at how consumers find a lawyer, uh, what's interesting is that the far and away, the, the most common way that consumers find lawyers is through referrals. Uh, you know, either uh, getting a referral from a friend or family or getting a referral from another lawyer. Uh, and the second most common way that they find lawyers is using an online search engine. And what was interesting is down at the bottom of the list with single digit percentages in terms of, you know, actual uh, success with, with linking consumers with, with lawyers are, are some of the channels that a lot of lawyers think are still effective, whether that's the yellow pages or TV ads or billboards or, or radio ads. These are really not how your your average consumer finds a, a lawyer. Do, do we know anything about uh, about the the nature of the referrals? I mean, when I when I think about asking my friends a question these days, I don't always do it in person. Sometimes I do it online. Am I fighting the hypo or is that what we think might be meant by referrals? With, with referrals, the question we asked was, you know, really specifically getting a referral from a friend or, or family. So somebody that is relatively close in your network that you're saying, hey, I, I need to get a will done. Who should I work with for that? And looking within your network for a referral that is a, a known good lawyer. Or maybe you're talking to your, uh, your family lawyer and saying, look, I, I, I need help incorporating my business. Do you have a good lawyer I should talk to? And referrals coming from another lawyer. Those, 
those were the nature of the referrals that, that we saw in the survey. And so what did you find out about what consumers want from lawyers? So what they, they want, again, and I, I think it's a major departure from what most lawyers might think clients really care about, what topped out the list in terms of the most important things for, for consumers were uh, being able to respond to the first caller email right away. Uh, consumers expect more or less uh, immediate response from the lawyers they're reaching out to when they have a legal need. Uh, and, and consumers are measuring responsiveness on the order of, of minutes. And when you talk to lawyers around what kind of uh, SLAs they might have around responding to inbound inquiries and so on, a lot of law offices, if they have SLAs at all, talk about uh, that timeline being on the order of, of days, like we'll get back within one day or two days. And in the consumer universe, that's, that's just way too slow. Uh, consumers also you know, want uh, free initial consultations. They want fixed fees. They want to be able to pay by credit card. Uh, they want to be able to exchange texts with their, their lawyer. Uh, and and you know, what's way down on the list in terms of what consumers actually care about is you know, what, what law school you went to or whether you graduated at the, the top of your class or, or how great looking your website is. They're really looking for the, the, the on-demand, effortless experience kind of, kind of behaviors from the lawyers they end up selecting. And, you know, those are, those are a couple of things that are driving our, our future roadmap is really thinking about what tools can we give our lawyers, the, our client base, our customer base, as a secret weapon, essentially, to deliver amazing customer experiences and to deliver the legal experiences that, that consumers are looking for. And expectations have just changed a lot. Consumer expectations have been shaped by the likes of Uber and Airbnb and Amazon in terms of what, you know, what kind of experience they want. Uh, they want a mobile first experience. They don't want to be coming to your, uh, your big expensive downtown law office to, to deal with you. They, they probably want to have a secure video chat with you from the, the comfort of their home. And we think there, there's a really exciting transformation about to happen in terms of how legal services are, are delivered. And we think the cloud and technology is going to be a really foundational aspect of that change. So we've just about scratched the surface of the Legal Trends Report, which is a really fascinating look into what lawyers are getting out of their practices, um, what might be holding them up and holding them back, and what consumers want from lawyers. And you can find it by Googling Clio Legal Trends Report, and you'll get right to it. Um, I really recommend taking a look. It's a really fascinating and informative piece. Thanks for being with us today, Jack. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sam. Hey, so I'm Ben Bark. I'm a law professor at the University of Tennessee. I taught for about 10 years in our law school clinic. So I appeared in court with indigent folks and uh, supervised the students working with them. And now I teach torts and advocacy evidence. And I've written a book called Rebooting Justice. I was just going to plug the book in case you didn't get to it. <laughs> Thanks for being with us today. And so if you could sum up Rebooting Justice in kind of a uh, a pitch to a publisher, how would you, what's that sort of nugget that you would give? Yeah, so the first half of the book is a description of the access to justice problem in both the civil courts and the criminal courts, explaining how we've gotten there, explaining the solutions that we've tried and why they failed. And then the second half of the book are suggestions for things uh, that we think, oh, and I should say we, it's co-written by myself and a professor at Penn named Stefanos Bibas, suggestions that we think will turn the tide. So let's maybe take each of those in turn. You know, you, you call access to justice a crisis, and 
it it feels like access to justice is something that gets just thrown around now. It's almost a, like a brand that you just slap on things to make it sound more palatable. But let's break it out, and maybe you can explain to us what is the actual nature of the crisis and where did it come from? And I, I realize it's a huge question, so... No, 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 that's totally <laughs> fine. Yeah, so it's sort of like uh, whether you choose the criminal courts or the civil courts, um, Americans from poor people all the way up to upper middle class people just cannot afford very much in the way of legal services. Uh, and this is at the same time that the procedures and the laws that govern their lives have grown sort of more involved in their lives and also more complicated. And so however you want to slice it, like if you slice it in terms of the cost of legal services, and the amount of legal services people get, or you do surveys of people, do you have a legal problem and have you been able to hire a lawyer to address it or go to court to address it? Um, or just the simplest way is the butts and seats pro se crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, by all measures, pro se appearances in courts all over the country, including federal courts, are up and not up by a small percentage, like massively, massively up. Right. Like I think it's like 75% of people in family court are, are pro se. Or 75% oh, yeah. of cases, at least one party is pro se. Yeah, and that we call those, I mean, on the civil side, we call those the pro se courts. Um, and there's a bunch of them. It's not just, I mean, bankruptcy court's like that, landlord-tenant court is like that, small claims court is like that, collections court is like that. Uh, there's just a heap of courts where the majority of folks in there are not represented by a lawyer. Which is a problem because, I mean, you just, you just uh, mentioned two of my, uh, the ones that are near and dear to me, which is landlord-tenant and collections. And... In collections court, you have the courts um, garnishing one person's wages after the next, and then as soon as somebody comes in there with the defense attorney, uh, you win the case. And landlord-tenant is very similar, where if you have a lawyer, you win the vast majority, you evict somebody the vast majority of the time, and if some a tenant has a lawyer on their side, that gets cut to nothing. It's a huge problem. Yeah, no, and and the different uh, the the hardest ones are the ones where there's a lawyer on one side. Uh, yeah. But in my opinion, you know, like child support court, there's usually a lawyer on neither side, and that's still problematic, especially since most of these courts still operate uh, procedurally as if there were lawyers in the court, which is like the worst possible yeah. combination of things. Well, let me. I, I think I know how you're going to answer this, but I think this is such a crucial thing that I, I want to make sure and highlight it. So, is the problem? getting more people lawyers or is that a separate or but related problem ah funny you should ask sam <laughs> uh yeah the gist of the book and the central nugget of it is that w what we call the more lawyers more justice fallacy has failed in the past and will continue to fail in the future um and it's failed in criminal court for felonies and misdemeanors, which is really the only place we've tried it, right? So because of Gideon and the cases that follow it, if you're going to spend any time in jail at all, you get assigned a free lawyer if you can't afford one. Um, well, the first thing is that the can't afford one part is quite problematic because if you're a middle-class person who picks up a DUI, you could spend 48 hours in jail, but more importantly, lose your license for a year and maybe even lose your vehicle. Uh, and the fees for defending a uh, just a pretty relatively simple DUI are super expensive. So right out of the gate, you've got this whole swath of folks who would be screwed in criminal court. But even the people who get free lawyers, uh, they just don't fund them very well. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is, believe me, I worked as a clinical professor, and I've taught a bunch of people who went on to be public defenders, and I love public defenders, bless their hearts. 
Uh, they're doing everything they can with the resources they're given, but they just have too many cases and too much stuff to do to give everybody uh, like a realistic, real defense in court. Um, so then, so that explains sort of the problem on the criminal side, and then that, to me, makes it even more clear why you're never going to have any help on the civil side. Um, legal aid, uh, again, bless their hearts, uh, but they can't possibly reach the need that they have for the people who are below the poverty line. And, of course, they don't reach anybody in the middle class. I mean, I think they're reaching like 20 percent of the need. Oh, yeah. No, totally. Yeah. Um, and even if you went to some sort of civil Gideon or some sort of uh, guaranteed lawyer, what are the odds that that would be better funded than the lawyers that are public defenders? I mean, it's just funding is not going to be there. Um, and there's no political will to do it. Uh, so that, in, in our opinion, that solution has been tried, and it's just like Groundhog Day. We're just trying that solution over and over again to continued failure. Well, and I, I suppose uh, one of my soapboxes, too, is that cost isn't the only problem here, and we, we often treat it like it is. And, and it certainly is for a certain piece of the income spectrum, but at some point you also run into people who don't hire a lawyer because they either don't know a lawyer can help them or they don't want to or they don't trust the you know there's a variety of reasons why but as the ABA's surveying has shown there's kind of a once people can start affording lawyers they still don't always hire them oh yeah no totally they either uh, misidentify the problem or uh, and but and this is where I may disagree with the ABA uh, they don't think that hiring a lawyer is the solution uh, right. for the reasons you say they're scared to they don't know a lawyer um, they think they can get by without one, all of those things. Well, and finding a lawyer is actually really hard. <laughs> yeah, no, although, again, that like uh, one of the things that the, the book points out is that technology has made all of this stuff better, and over time it can continue to make it better. Yeah. So, okay, so most people don't have lawyers for various reasons. Yeah. Okay, so what? So what's the? what do we try to do with that? Like, let's get into that second piece. So how should we start thinking about that when we think about the construction of the legal system and how to solve that problem. Yeah, so we um, work on several different fronts, uh, but the first best place to start, I think, is to just think about the American court system. And uh, you start with the courts that we call the pro se courts. There, it's a majority of the people, one side or the other, or both don't have a lawyer. Uh, there's no reason whatsoever why any of those courts should be set up on the assumption that people have lawyers. Yeah. So we should just start from the bottom and rethink those processes in those courts just to reflect the reality that's on the ground. Um, so instead of uh, having pro se people and trying to work around their lack of knowledge of the rules of evidence or their lack of knowledge of the various levels of procedures you have to operate in that court, uh, we've got that exactly backwards. Like those courts need to be radically simplified and set up so that individuals without a lawyer are the baseline. That's the expectation. Um, and then it's the people who have lawyers who have to adjust to it, not the other way around. You know, this just popped into my head. I, when I was starting out in my own practice, people would want to help me in conciliation court. And conciliation court is not really built to have lawyers in there representing people. Um, that, you know, the referees or the judges who are in conciliation court, they'll let you, but like, there's no structure there for like cross-examining witnesses and things. It's just, it's the exception rather than the rule. And it sounds like, I mean, maybe conciliation court should not be the model, probably not, but like, it sounds like that kind of an attitude where lawyers are the exception rather than the rule, which is in fact true, is what courts need to adopt and then start working with that. Yeah, no, and people, uh, particularly your listeners are going to be all lawyers, so they're going to think. <laughs> The radical suggestion, um, but there's a couple things we point out in the in the book. First is that the inquisitorial system, which this wouldn't be full on inquisitorial, but it would be a modified version of it, 
you know, two-thirds of the humans on Earth live under that system, and they survive. Say more about that. Could that that's the first time I've heard that phrase. Oh, uh, inquisitorial is the, the civil law system. Uh, the original versions were in France and Germany, um, but the civil law system is also in Japan and China. Um, so you've got – and basically it's where the – judge is the person who asks the questions and the judge is the person who gathers the documents and the judge is the central mover making things happen. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas in the in the adversarial system, uh, and most common law systems, it's the lawyers that really do all that and the judge sort of sits as a referee. So it's a shift in the judicial um, role. Gotcha. But uh, so uh, at administrative courts, and it sounds like the conciliation, conciliation one works this way too, um, they tend to be more inquisitorial. So uh, since I was a clinical law professor, I worked in the unemployment insurance referee courts, and those are totally not set up to be run by lawyers. They're set up where the judge is doing the questioning and figuring things out. It sounds a bit like, because um, in our landlord-tenant courts, after a while, the judges in Minneapolis... Uh, you have to be a licensed landlord in order to collect rent. And so you need to be licensed in order to evict somebody. And it used to be that um, whether you were licensed or not, you'd go into court and you'd argue that this person hadn't paid rent. And if nobody brought up the fact that you didn't have a license, you'd get your eviction. And eventually the courts thought, eh, you know, it's probably not too unfair if we make landlords, you know, answer that question beforehand. Right. It sounds like that's an example of the judge has a checklist of things that you need in order to bring this that go beyond oh, mere yeah, like jurisdiction. Totally. Right. No, and, and uh, I mean, um, when you talk to judges about the access to justice crisis, lots of times you'll hear them say, oh, it's terrible. These people come in without lawyers and they don't know what evidence <laughs> what do to we present. Do? They don't know the right <laughs> questions to ask. <laughs> right, right. And they're like, every day I come in and I see them get railroaded by their landlords, and that's really a shame. Yeah. And I'm like, wouldn't it be amazing if there was somebody in the court who had a law license who knew what to ask for? That would be crazy. So, sorry, yeah. sorry, judges. Um, right. And the uh, and also remember, Americans are used to seeing Judge Judy. Like yeah. this is not of the, the, oftentimes when they show up in landlord tenant court or in small claims courts, they're confused by the way things are running because it's not what they expect. So part of it is a change in um, I mean, and, you, and that go, that would be clerk's offices, that would be judges, and that would be procedures along the way. And then there's the technology portion to it can handle a bunch of these problems too. Uh, so we spend a lot of time in the book talking about online dispute resolution and ways to sort of slot that in along with court procedures, especially in these pro se courts, to try and make it fairer and easier for folks. Can, so say more about where, because, you know, I hear online dispute resolution mentioned a bunch. I've had limited experience with it myself, and my experience has not been great. And that's it. That's basically all I have to go on. So, so say more about why that might be part of a solution and how it might fit in. Okay, yeah. So um, I am not a stockholder in this company, <laughs> uh, but there's a company called Modria. And uh, in our opinion, they're sort of the grade A top dog in the online dispute resolution but, space. Okay, but hold on. And now I'm going to geek out for a second. But like, yeah, they got fine. bought by Tyler. Totally. Which makes the garbage e-filing software that we all have to use. Doesn't that just, isn't that the death knell for Modria? Oh, see, I think you've got that exactly backwards. Really? The getting it bought by Tyler. Well, so I, I, uh, I'm not going to say anything about Tyler's <laughs> other offerings. <laughs> I'll be happy that. to. <laughs> um, that's fine. Um, but uh, they, they they do supply the majority of the e-filing processes in the country. Yeah. And I think it's like something, some like the you can find it on their website, but it's some number above 50%. Like 60% of Americans live in a county where Tyler does the um, the courts. Oh, absolutely. That doesn't surprise me at all. And so they, they've bought Modria, and they're now just pitching all of these courts that they're going to give them the 
online dispute resolution aspect to it free along with the with the e-filing. Hmm. Um, so it, all of a sudden, the uh, applications of Mojury are going to explode around the uh, country. So and even if I think it's bad software, it doesn't matter. It's going to be used. Well, but the thing – so uh, again, I can't comment <laughs> on the side of technologies, but the Modria software is super cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, 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 I can't remember. I've listened a bunch, but have you have you all done a podcast on Modria or not? No, we haven't. Like I, I really am, am fairly ignorant about it, actually. Oh, all right. Rock on. So um, there's this guy named Colin Rule who totally coincidentally is the year below me uh, at college. And he is not a particularly strong computer programmer, but what he is is he's a crazy true believer in mediation. Uh, He and I went to this tiny Quaker college called Haverford College, and he was on the Honor Council, and then he went and got a peace and reconciliation degree from Harvard, Hmm. and he went and did the Peace Corps, and then he got into online dispute resolution. And he got into it not because he was looking to be a jillionaire or because he's good at coding. He got into it because he just believes so passionately in mediation. So his first big job was working for eBay. And so when eBay first started out, you can imagine the crazy explosive growth they had of the number of people buying and selling things on eBay. Yeah. Well, uh, as a lawyer, you will not be surprised at all to hear that when you have a lot of people buying and selling things, at least some percentage of them, and eBay says it's like below 1%, but some percentage of them end up in disputes, right? I didn't get the right thing. This is actually my limited experience with uh, online dispute resolution is apparently Modria because of a BlackBerry that I bought on eBay. Oh, okay, great. Well, in a minute you can tell me the story. (laughs) So anyhow, uh, they hired him because originally they had uh, humans doing the dispute resolution, right? So they had the equivalent of uh, just a customer service department, and if something was screwed up, you'd call them, and they would try and fix it. Well, even after about a year of operating eBay, they were like, good Lord, like the entire company is going to be customer relations. Like We just can't have that many humans handling this many disputes. We're selling too much stuff. So they hired Colin to design the dispute resolution process, and for eBay, he set up this tiered dispute resolution so the part one of it is you type in your complaint and the machine tries to figure out what type of complaint it is. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of complaints that the machine handles without ever contacting anybody. So, for example, my item has not arrived. The machine figures out what your order is. The machine looks at the tracking number. And then if it's still in process, it just says, dude, it's going to get there on Tuesday and it takes care of it. If it's not one the machine can fix, then it contacts the other person. And they go, you go back and forth with what you think the problem is and, and how you want to solve it. And the machine pitches solutions for you. So step one and step two are completely non-human driven at all. And then if that doesn't work, uh, eBay will do a human mediation where they keep track of everything you've already said. So they won't start from scratch. A human looks at it and says, have you tried this? Have you tried that? If they say no, then it goes to the equivalent of arbitration, where, again, there's no new information. Everything's recorded. The person just reads it all and says person A wins, person B loses. Um, and so they were really happy with it in the process. Um, again, this is all from the eBay point of view, but they thought it worked really well. They reported customer satisfaction. And actually, people who had disputes on eBay, even the losers of the disputes, were more likely to come back and shop at eBay. So they decided to license the technology, and they split it off into a separate company called Modria, and that's where it started. So tell me what happened with the BlackBerry. Well, I mean, it might, that all sounds very familiar. I, uh, I got a BlackBerry that had a dead pixel line in it, and I reported that, and the, the manufacturer or the seller 
uh, wanted to mediate to see if the, I would remove my negative review of it. And, and I was like, no, I'm not gonna, I mean, there's a dead pixel line on my screen and it, it's there. And, and actually what I, what was good about it, but also a little bit annoying at the time was, um, either the system or a human. And I can't, I think I got escalated at one point. So there's a human kept asking me, well, surely there's a dollar figure that would persuade you to remove your view. Um, and, and I was like, no, it's just a dead pixel. And it was like, no, no, I mean, there's surely there's a dollar figure. And I actually appreciated that because, um, as a lawyer, I hated getting shuttled into like community mediation where they didn't want to talk about money and they only wanted to talk about feelings because I just wanted money. Right. And, and so actually I really right. appreciated that Modria was focused on surely there's a dollar figure. <laughs> and eventually right. I was like, fine, it's this. And I think it was more than the price of the Blackberry and they accepted it and they paid me off and I removed the review and that's it. Oh, is that true? Really? Yeah. yeah. So, so there is a price for your integrity. Huh? Uh, yeah, I guess so. a little more than the price of a Blackberry. Apparently. <laughs> I, I think so. Yeah. If you just basically undo the transaction, I'm okay with it. <laughs> so anyway, so that, so that was my experience with it and it was, it was fine. And to bring it back, the possibility is that whenever you get involved in a dispute through the court system, uh, you'll automatically be offered the option to mediate it through Modria. Oh yeah, no. And I think that the plan is eventually to have it be a required part. I mean, you know, like there's a lot of different court systems where there's required mediation mm -hmm. at the beginning. Um, that's, a, that's a classic one for divorce or other family. I mean, almost everything now, really. Right. But I mean, there's no reason why you can't put in the Modria part before the human mediation part and just hear yeah. it all. Um, and, and then you can have the online dispute resolution, get all the low-hanging fruit, and then only cases that really sort of need to go to human mediation will go on. All right. So we need to take a quick break from our sponsors. And we come back, I want to keep talking about some of the promising technologies that might help us eliminate some of the, the access to justice gap. So we'll be back. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. You could invest in marketing your firm. You could spend more time helping clients in need. Or you could catch your daughter's soccer game. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With Clio, tracking time, billing, and matter management are fast and easy, giving you more time to focus on what really matters. And Clio is a complete practice management platform with plenty of tools and over 50 integrations to help you automate daily tasks such as document generation and court calendaring. See how the right software can make it easier to manage your practice. Try Clio for free today at Clio.com. This podcast is supported by Ruby Receptionists. As a matter of fact, Ruby answers our phones at Lawyerist, and my firm was a paying Ruby customer before that. Here's what I love about Ruby. When I'm in the middle of something, I hate to be interrupted, so when the phone rings, it annoys me, and that often carries over into the conversation I have after I pick up the phone, which is why I'm better off not answering my own phone. Instead, Ruby answers the phone, and if the person on the other end asks for me, a friendly, cheerful receptionist from Ruby calls me and asks if I want them to put the call through. It's a buffer that gives me a minute to let go of my annoyance and be a better human being during the call. If you want to be a better human being on the phone, give Ruby a try. Go to callruby.com slash lawyerist to sign up, and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. If you aren't happy with Ruby for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks. I'm pretty sure you'll stick around, but since there is no risk, you might as well try. Okay, so we've talked about, uh, we've talked about Modria. Um, we've talked about the need to treat the courts as if the, the customer, the client, the, the primary user is pro se. Um, what are some of the other things out there that maybe courts are even actually doing now that are promising? Yeah. So the, the courts are doing both of those things yeah. and there's actually a lot of openness to it, especially at the state court level. I mean, when I talk to courts, I, I hear judges saying, 
we understand that lawyers are not our primary users anymore. Yeah, no, and there's like there's a, an, an an adjustment that's going on, um, and the state supreme court group is really into it. Um, and then the various uh, access to justice commissions have done pretty amazing work. So this is the second part of the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one, there's a access to justice commission in Tennessee where I teach, but it's in like 42 different states. And basically, what these commissions do is they figure out areas where they can help folks who don't have lawyers, and they put fillable forms up on the state Supreme Court website that people can print out and then use. Um, So this sounds sort of basic, and in fact, like as a programming matter, it's the world's most basic thing. (laughs) It's like 1988 programming. Um, But as a legal matter, it's actually a pretty big deal. So, uh, for example, in Tennessee, there's 97 different counties, right? And before someone could file for a pro se divorce, they would have to figure out in their little county what the judges liked and what form they wanted to use. And the clerk's office would frequently bounce them and the questions were and answers were different everywhere in the state. So the state Supreme Court, and this is what all of these courts are doing, just straight ordered, like this is what a pro se divorce application looks like and you must take it. And that's it. Hmm. So now it's right there on the website. And the steps are there, um, and there's a, like a instructions that go with it. Uh, other states, like Indiana's got a whole YouTube channel where they have instructions for how to do all this with like a happy clerk explaining it to you and pointing at all the lines. Um, California and New York have like not dozens but hundreds of forms online. Uh, so there's this real explosion in allowing pro se people to have sort of a set form and a set process for them. So that's working really well, we think. I mean, standardized forms are huge. Whether or not you turn them into, you know, online fillable, submittable things, like standardized forms are huge. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. It's a really, really big move forward and we and weirdly hard. Yeah. <laughs> like uh, you would think that that would be something if you didn't know how judges and courts operate, you would think that that would not be a big deal. But that, in fact, is a really big deal to have a single statewide form for changing your name, a single statewide form for changing child custody, a single statewide form for filing for divorce. All of those things are really helpful. And by the way, they're sort of they're helpful for the lawyers, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, and our, our listeners are lawyers, so this isn't going to surprise them. But on the off chance that non-lawyers are listening, it's because like at any point in the hierarchy from the, the, the Supreme Court of a state to the U.S. Supreme Court to the chambers of an individual judge, right? Somebody can say, no, I'm not going to accept that form. Oh, yeah, totally. And, and that's why standardizing is so hard because there are so many steps along the way where somebody can just say, no, 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 in my courtroom, we use that form, but you also have to submit this addendum. And then you've thrown up a new barrier. Yeah, no, totally. So yeah, so we're very excited about that. We think that's super promising. Very cool. <laughs> I, I want to end with some optimism uh, because I'm about to dive into some pessimism, which is how are lawyers and the existing structure of the legal system getting in the way of change? Oh, see, really? You got to bait me? <laughs> <laughs> I do. <laughs> because I see opportunity in it, but I want to, but I think it's it's important to put it out there so that, um, so that the protectionists get what they came for. Yeah. Um, so I'll tell a short story. Uh, well, the first is I think that it's very problematic. I think uh, bar regulators have been very problematic. Um, and I think the courts have been way better than lawyers at mm-hmm. large. The short story I'll tell is the, and I can't, I can't, I don't think I've heard this on, on your podcast, the AVO legal services story. Yep. So, um, the more AVO recent added, version of it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah AVO added, uh, legal services, at first, they did advice, and now they've got fixed-fee legal services for filing an LLC and, and a bunch of other things. 
And uh, it's come up so far in, I think, six or seven different state ethics boards where you write in a letter and ask a question and they send back an answer. And five of the six have said that it violates fee sharing and unauthorized practice law and a bunch of other different things. Uh, so they're trying to drive Apple Legal Services out of the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, this is crazy. Uh, the market already has computerized legal services being provided by LegalZoom and Rocket Lawyer. And so far, those companies have skated through the unauthorized practice of law. And in my opinion, rightfully, but that's a different question. It's a fact on the ground that they're operating in all 50 states and they're having success. Uh, Apple Legal Services actually sells services by licensed lawyers, right? So if you were a bar regulator, you would think, oh, look, here's a... Here's a competitor to LegalZoom and Rocket Lawyer, and instead of trying to drive them out of business, we should let them do their thing and hope that there's some place for lawyers in this low end of the market. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, that's just a classic short-sighted misunderstanding of it. They think that if they get rid of fixed-fee legal services for Apple legal services, they're going to make it better for the folks on the front line of serving middle-class people. But in my opinion, they've got that exactly backwards. Like That's just driving people away from human lawyers and towards uh, – Legal Zoom and Rocket Lawyer. I mean, if if people aren't confused about whether or not they've hired a lawyer, and in fact, if they actually have hired a lawyer, then I, I feel like you're actually just stifling competition, good competition, by by trying to regulate that away. Um, oh yeah, it no, it doesn't totally. make sense. Right, right. So, um, and that's just a, that's just one of the examples. I mean, again, uh, the the listeners here may disagree, but we're pro Legal Zoom and Rocket Lawyer. Like we're pro computerized mm-hmm. legal services. Uh, but that being said, of course, I'm pro-legalized, uh, computerized legal services all the way up the chain. Like I think of it as mm-hmm. like menu options, like the LegalZoom and Rocket Lawyer, like fast food and Avo legal services or like Chipotle or, or uh, Fridays or something. You know, it's still the uh, cheaper end of the services, um, but it's fancier because you get an actual human to do the actual work and speak to you as a human <laughs> instead of a machine. There, there are some interesting developments on the UPL front, though. I know in Florida... Um, a past president of the bar, so the Florida State Bar Association, um, is representing uh, an online uh, parking ticket or, or speeding ticket resolution company, um, and suing the bar for anti-competitive practices in trying to um, put it out of business for UPL. Yeah, it's super interesting to me that the 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 lead plaintiff suing the bar is a former bar president. I think that's kind of yeah, cool. that is that so. is, and I mean that that's basically LegalZoom has brought that case and won it where they brought it. So, um, so yeah. yeah. So how can lawyers help? Let's be, let's be optimistic. And, and maybe what, what opportunities, what's, what are the opportunities left for lawyers um, if we start automating everything? Yeah. So uh, this is why I was so psyched that you asked me to be on the podcast and why I like your podcast so much and why I'm so pleased to speak to the tribe. Oh, shucks. No, I'm serious. <laughs> like the, the folks who listen to this are the exact perfect people. Um, because uh, they're the ones who are doing the work. They're the ones who, uh, I mean, mm-hmm. basically the key problem and the real challenge on the small firm and solo practitioner front is to provide more services to more people for less money. Um, and the good news about that, the thing that I'm super enthusiastic about, is that technology is making that a lot easier. Yeah. Like we're we're making it really, really possible to do that. And the folks that are listening here and the po- folks who check out your website are the ones who are on the front lines of doing it. Um, and there, I think we're really looking at the 
low-hanging fruit. Um, I know. I think you guys have talked about the Clio study about the hours that people spend yeah. on billable matters. I mean, that's just a perfect example of it. Like, there's, you're not going to make much of a living if you can only bill out two hours of an eight-hour day. Uh, but the good well, news and is, and, you could, and the the disclaimer on that is always, what kind of lawyer works an eight-hour day? Oh yeah, no, dude. Right. Yeah. No. <laughs> Lawyers are billing two hours out of a ten or a twelve-hour right. day in right. most cases. Yeah, yeah no, yeah. for sure. And I always point that out to people. Like, it not only is it a really tough market, it not only is it a hard sort of competition among small firm and solar practitioners. It's a really hard job. Yeah, it's a super hard job. Um, so yeah, but the good news is though that technology can can fix these things. And we are like law schools are another place that we talk about where their change needs to happen. Um, but some law schools, and we're trying here at Tennessee, are starting this process of explaining to the students, like, look, you really need to think about this more standardized way of practicing so that you can get more people in the door and get more business out the door. And you, know, you can charge them less but still make more money. And uh, guess what? If you're spending two hours of 10-hour days practicing law and that's why you went to law school and that's what you love doing, that's also not working out. I guess while I have a law professor on, um, I have a question for you ab about that. Yeah. Because um, there are lots of law schools that are currently really trying to focus on practice-ready skills or technology yeah. and things like that. And the reality seems to be that there are very, very few firms that are in the tribe that are hiring for those skills at this point. Yeah. So like those skills are for the jobs that will be potentially on the market in five or 10 years from now. But right now, the only thing you can do with those is go and start your own firm, which fully on board with that's it. But it, it feels to me like in a law school world that is mostly geared towards employment numbers and getting people jobs if you're trying to teach practical skills and technology, you're not helping people get jobs. That seems like a really weird position to be in right now, doesn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. And this is super mean to say about law schools, but that's actually a reflection of how crappy we are. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's partially a reflection on how crappy lawyers are because lawyers are uh, small C conservative. They don't like to change. They hide, When they got hired, they got hired because of their class rank. Mm -hmm. basically. And so when they go to hire somebody else, they're like, they just reproduce that. And that's true even at the small firm and solo, not just in, in big law. Um, but there's another part to it too, which is that they have tried the practice ready. You know, we, the law schools have been talking about practice ready for 25 years. And 10 years ago, they hired somebody who was practice ready and they weren't much better <laughs> than they were right. a generation before. Um, part of the problem is that law schools are not actually delivering on that promise. And part of the reason they're not delivering on that promise, um, and we argue this in the book, is they're just stuck in the same model that they've been stuck in since 1880. Um, and the changes, the practice-ready stuff, I mean, of course, I'm, I taught in clinics, I love clinics, um, but I think it's fair to say that clinics and the technology stuff are add-ons in the third year, not the heart of the experience. The heart of the experience is still, I, the first year is still yeah. identical to what it was 150 years ago. Well, and I guess I feel sort of emblematic of this. I, I don't want to point fingers or name names, but like there was a law, because this law school is trying hard. They really were trying to be um, a technology-focused law school and, and teach those sort of innovation skills. And, and in many ways, they were doing a really good job of it. But, um, but kind of on that, they were sort of putting technology onto the old school program. And what was sort of emblematic of that is I was, I was at a uh, a conference and the dean gets up to talk and starts with a joke about um, how hard it was for him to set up his email. And I'm just like, right. 
I just like wanted to smack my head on the table because like if you're if it doesn't if the change isn't, you know, throughout the DNA of the school, how do you actually teach those sorts of things? You're just sort of trying to put technology on things in the end, I guess. So Yeah. No, and it's even uh so that's a, a really good example, but it's a, a, even a little bit more than that in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So the first year and all of law school is about working the gray areas and uh, working on uncertainty, and each individual case has got a million different moving parts to it, and that's that is appropriate. Like I'm, that is the that's the most lucrative work that lawyers do, and so I understand that we have to train the people to do that. That being said, when you finish up law school and then you're told, oh no, no, dude, we spent all this time on like every case is an individual snowflake. Well, now you need to go out and commoditize your work and like repeat it and do it less expensive for more people. You're like, whoa, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> never heard that before. Uh, and that's a problem. You know what I mean? Like we're not, that's a aspect of the training that has to change. Um, and that's a real DNA problem. And you're going to have to do it on your own because there's no jobs for what we've told you you can do. <laughs> yeah. Well, right, right. right. There, there's still some jobs, but yeah, no, right. If you're going to, if you want to go out and do that, you're going to have to figure out how to either convince the firm that you're at to do that or do it on your own. Yeah. Yeah, I've dragged you far afield here, but um, Ben, I'm, I really appreciated having you on the podcast. No, you and... got me to complain about law schools. That's one of my favorites. So. <laughs> Good job by you. I ch- check another box. But I, this has been fun. We, I got to geek out with you um, about many of my my favorite issues in law and practice and and education. And so I really appreciate you being on the podcast. So thanks. No, I'm thrilled. Thank you so much for having me. And if you're interested in reading Ben's book, uh, Dirty Secret, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but it looks fascinating. It sounds great. Um, Talking with you, if you're not convinced by now that you ought to read it, then I don't even know what. So there'll be a link in the show notes. So go find that. Thanks so much. Beautiful. Thank you. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.